0: Good morning, friends. Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20. That's where we'll be picking up this morning. Uh, My name is Rob, and uh, I want to welcome you guys to Grace this morning, particularly if you're one of the Adventure Week families who maybe uh, spent some time on campus last week, haven't been here a lot before, and are kind of coming to check things out on a Sunday morning. We are especially glad that you are here and especially glad Uh, for the ministry of of Adventure Week. In fact, I'd love to uh, just pray for all the seeds that were scattered in the lives of those little ones. So join me in prayer if you would. Father, we are so grateful for the seeds of the gospel that were scattered on the hearts of those little lives and and parents' lives uh, over the course of the last week. And Lord, we pray in your mercy uh, that those would burrow deep and that they would bear good gospel fruit, and that they would do so soon. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, happy Father's Day, by the way. Um, so my, I'm wearing my favorite Father's Day shirt. Got it last, last year from my girls, so there's that. Hey, if you knew you only had a few days uh, left to live, how do you think you might spend them? What do you think your priorities uh, would be? Would you try to cross off some bucket list items? Would you hunker down with friends and family and loved ones and maximize those kinds of moments, we get to see in our passage today and in and, and the remaining chapters of Luke itself what Jesus does in that very situation. The clock is ticking. The days are very slightly numbered. And you could say, you could say in a word, Jesus is going out shepherding. He's going out shepherding. In the passage that we're going to look at today, he's engaging with his enemies. He is warning them, to be sure, but a warning, while there is an opportunity to respond to the warning, is also an invitation to repent, isn't it? He's inviting them to repent of rejecting him as the great cornerstone. Eric preached on that last week. He's teaching his disciples about what is centrally important. And as the good shepherd, he is obviously ultimately going to lay down his life for the sheep. Now, the uh, pretext of of engagement in the passage that we're going to consider this morning is a question that is brought to Jesus about a particular tax that was to be paid to Caesar. As Jesus makes clear in his response, however, the main point doesn't really revolve around the question that these religious leaders ask to him. Okay? That's not... That's not the central point of the passage. Rather, the main point is going to revolve around a far more important question, that their hypocrisy actually blinds them from asking. So let's read our passage, and uh, we will dive in. As I mentioned, we're in Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 19. And I imagine in many ways uh, this would be a passage familiar to many of you, Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. All right, so we're going to make our way uh, through this message in three main steps, three main chunks. The first one is a trap is set, and they're trying to trap Jesus. The second one is Jesus... Uh, response to their pretentious question, so a response to pretense. The third and most important component of the story is the way Jesus addresses himself to the more urgent question that they did not ask, and part number three is the key. Uh, but but first, part number one. So a trap is set. We see the context uh, for, this, for this encounter. It's laid out in verses 19 Uh, through 22. And verse 19 links us back to Eric's message last week. The scribes and the chief priests are here reacting to the parable that Jesus just told against them. Jesus has identified them as being the wicked tenants. And they have heard that, and they're responding to that, and they're angered by that. And so they come at Jesus, but they don't come at him with, with a frontal assault, right? They come at him, verse 20 tells us, through through the use of spies, why would they do that? Why, why indirect? And the answer, according to verse nineteen, is because they feared the people. Now, I thought that was interesting—that uh, comment that they feared the people in verse nineteen. As I was, as I was sort of reflecting on this this passage, and one a commentator, I, I, I think, pretty helpfully explained: like they're not they're not afraid of the people's firepower, right? Um, what what they fear specifically is losing influence over the people, right? The masses are are, uh, attracted to Jesus, and so they're losing influence. And to the degree that they uh, they fear losing influence over the people, they're also afraid of losing the esteem they receive from the people. You can see their motives. And to some extent, you can see the problem right at the outset of the passage, can't you? These shepherds don't love God people. They fear the loss of prominence from the people. They are not feeding, they are devouring. They are not serving, they are using. You can see we're not going to look there now, but, but uh, down in verses 45 to 47 of our same chapter, Jesus will highlight a little bit more of this description. These guys are fattening themselves at the expense of the flock just like Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 had long ago warned. In any case, the spies are attempting, by means of flattery, to trap Jesus. The goal of the trap, we see this in verse 20, they want to get him handed over to the jurisdiction of the governor. That's Pilate in this case, okay? And the way they're doing this, they're trying to pit Jesus in a lose-lose situation. So regardless of how he answers their question... They've, they've schemed up a way that it's a loss for Jesus, right? Heads, I win. Tails, you lose kind of, kind of thing. Under, they're under Roman rule. Jews are under Roman rule at this point. They don't have the authority to execute. They don't have the authority of the death penalty. Rome does. Pilate does. And so they're trying to get him into Pilate's jurisdiction. And so they ask this question publicly uh, about paying the tribute as a Jew to Caesar, What's the tribute? It's a specific tax. It was a Roman poll tax uh, on each household that was paid directly to the Roman emperor. Now, however much you may hate paying your taxes, they hated paying this tax far more, okay? Because this tax was a tangible reminder to the people of Israel that they were under the reign at this point in time of a pagan ruler and not God's Messiah. And when we consider the image and inscription on the coin in a bit, we'll see that makes it even worse. So they asked Jesus, should we pay it? Well, here's what's behind door number one. If he says, pay it, he loses the support of the masses. The masses are of the persuasion that the Messiah will overthrow their oppressors, in this case, they're thinking Roman oppressors, and not bankroll them. If he says, pay it, how can he be the Messiah? Door number two. If he says, don't pay it, Rome doesn't take proclamations of insurrection lightly. Uh, You can read a little bit, don't do it now. You can read a little bit in Acts 537, Acts 537 about a guy called Judas the Galilean, who, 30 years prior to this, attempted to lead a revolt against this very tax, and it didn't go very well for him. So if Jesus in particular, says, "Don't pay," that'll land him before Pilate an extension of Caesar, who will do their dirty work for him, or for them. OK? Now, just a little footnote, Jesus doesn't step into their trap in this passage, but when they do get him brought before Pilate, you see this in Luke 23, verse 2, when they do finally get him brought before Pilate, you know what they do? They accuse him of, of forbidding the paying of this tribute to Caesar, right? They, 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 they're, they're deceptive, and the same, they have the same goal of having Jesus executed. In any case, this is a pretty clever little trap, isn't it? I mean, in some ways, they, they've, they've kind of learned from Jesus. Back up in, in uh, the earlier part of chapter 20, Jesus put them between a rock and a hard place with a question about John the Baptist. and They've kind of learned from the master, and they're trying to turn the screws here. But, as you can also see their question, it's not really a serious-minded inquiry into the dynamics of taxation at the intersection of faith-state relationships in this world's political sphere. They're trying to get him killed. It's It's not a question seeking education. It's a question seeking execution. So what he says, what Jesus says in response to their question, while it's not unrelated to faith and state considerations, he's after way more than merely how we respond to Caesar with the coins in our pocket. He's not after less than that, but he's after a whole lot more than that. Okay, so that's step one. Step two. Addressing their pretense, right? Their pretentious question. Uh, This comes in verses 23 to 25 in particular. So, So he sees right through their pretense, verse 23 says as much, and then he asks them to produce a denarius in verse 24. The denarius, we're told, has Caesar's likeness on it. And it also has an inscription. The inscription reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So what's that? That's a claim of Caesar to be a divine son, isn't it? And and with this tax, Caesar is definitely subjecting others to Roman sovereignty. So you can see, it's it's not hard to imagine why this would provoke such visceral opposition in Israel. We're not being ruled by the Messiah, and we're paying taxes to a king making a false claim to be a divine son. But the inscription, it's an idolatrous claim, and it reaches far beyond what is properly owed to the state. So they produce this denarius, and Jesus goes on in verse 25 to make what is his most well-known statement in the passage, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You want to concentrate on the first part for a moment because that's the part they have asked about, the render to Caesar part. So here's the point. Uh, Whose likeness does the coin have? Answer, Caesar's. So here's what Jesus says. Give to Caesar. What bears his likeness? You can probably guess where the rest of the sermon is going to go, but we're going to save that (laughs) for a bit. Uh, One commentator said, The belief at the time was that the coin was the property of the person whose image and inscription was on it. This coin, this denarius, had been minted out of Caesar's wealth. The verb render can be translated pay back or give back what is owed. It is Caesar's coin. It has Caesar's likeness. So Jesus says it is proper to pay back what belongs to him. Let's broaden out for a moment, okay? While Jesus is not giving a comprehensive exposition on faith and state relations, he does acknowledge the state as a valid institution. It's authorized by God, and in so doing, it has the right to make certain claims upon us. Indeed, Scripture calls on... Followers of Jesus, not only to render unto Caesar, but to pray for him. You would see this, for example, in a, a passage like 1 Timothy 2 2. To pray for Caesar's very best, indeed for Caesar's salvation. So I want to consider uh, a moment, for a moment, where you and I are called upon to submit to authority. Because none of us is exempt from that, right? All of us are obligated to authorities outside of ourselves in a variety of ways. In particular, I want us to consider what what our disposition to external authorities expresses about us. What does our our response to being governed express about us? So, I mean, it won't surprise you for me to say that our society is often wildly anti-authority, right? First instincts commonly question authority, speak truth to power, stick it to the man. Jesus is not leveraging that kind of revolution. Now, it is, true, it is true that human authority is not inherent like God's authority is. It is also true that human authority is delegated and therefore limited, also unlike God's authority. So delegated, limited, not inherent on our side, Right? Inherent, not delegated, not limited, on God's side. And Jesus will unmistakably expose the limits of Caesar's claim. But he doesn't say that Caesar has no claim. And so if we would honor Jesus, we must honor what he honors. So back to our question for a moment. Do you, do I, only respect authority... When it meets with our approval. Uh, Here's a couple of comparably minor expressions. A little pop quiz. See how you do. Ready? Number one. Speed limit. (laughs) Just leave that there. Number two. (laughs) April 15th. Number three, National Park, sign, don't feed the wildlife. Hitting a few people between the eyes. I'm, I'm, okay, I said I wasn't gonna do this, but then I saw Curtis Collier. Curtis, where are you? Yes, so I'm gonna do it, is it okay? Curtis is my favorite umpire in the whole wide world. I have watched Curtis, umpire game, and I just, I mean, umpires often get under my skin, Way too competitive, um, particularly referees or umpires who do not protect the players. That's just nothing really burns my grits. Like, but Curtis has great command. Like he 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 doesn't put up with guff, but he he he's also just super. Com- I mean, boy, umpires take a beating. Am I right? Yes. Such composure. By the way, would you, be, would you pray for Curtis? He's got a job interview on Wednesday, and he has, been, he has been desiring and seeking and patiently trusting the Lord for a job for a long time. And he was just telling me before the service that he's got a great interview with uh, Daisy. Daisy Brands, they do the sour cream. And so, okay, so it'd be a neat, really uh, neat opportunity. So we're, we're praying for him. Would you, would you pray for him? Let's pray for him. Lord, put it in the heart, we ask, of the Daisy representative to recognize Curtis's giftedness and skill, composure and wisdom, and offer him a job this Wednesday. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Anyway, uh, so like umpires, they're not state agents, but they can, like, here's the question. What, what does what is the response of being governed push up to the surface in your heart? And I'm sure, like me, for you, it means it's not always compelling and something we can learn from so now here's the good news here's the good news we can rely on the character of god and submit to delegated human authority because we trust god even when we disagree with these other authorities or dislike the rules they happen to to assign Romans 13 specifies that this world's governing authorities have been instituted by God and function, in some sense, as God's servant. They're not God, but they are instituted by God. It's just as important to say that every Caesar, every king, every state governor is under God's sovereignty and will ultimately answer to him. At any point, God can put Nebuchadnezzar out to pasture like he did in Daniel chapter 4. Proverbs twenty-one, one reminds us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. But even when God does not deliver, according to our timeline or our expectations, he still remains completely trustworthy, and he is still reigning. You see this beautifully illustrated, don't you, in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, probably came to 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 mind, excuse me, for many of you, Uh, they respond to Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God alone is worthy of worship regardless of the cost." God alone has unrivaled authority. He shows that when he deposes uh, Pharaoh, when he delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and fundamentally when the grave can't hold Jesus. All other authority is delegated and accountable to him. Now, while we are uh, considering the notion of delegated human authority, we should take a moment and consider, because we're all called upon to submit to authority, but we're also uh, in, in positions to steward authority, aren't we? So, so how, how, how's that going? We, we know that human authority can be misused. It can even be abused. But friends, it's not inherently a curse. Delegated human authority is, by design, from the beginning intended to function as a blessing. Listen to what David says. King David, in some of the last words of his life, this comes out of 2 Samuel 23. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's fruit bearing, isn't it? Life giving. So in the areas where you steward authority, how are you doing? Pastors, grace group shepherds. Are we shepherding after the pattern of the good shepherd? God help us if we would use authority to self-promote in a way that would actually divert people's attention away from Jesus. This this is why in the pastoral epistles there are um, piles and piles of character quality criteria assigned in conjunction with pastoral authority. Husbands, husbands, It's a good question to ask your wife this week. I think I learned this from Eric and Donna. Am I a joy to follow? Ask it, and then listen to what she says. If you want to know how your leadership is being received, you will ask the one receiving it and adjust accordingly. Parents, maybe dads especially, in light of Ephesians 6.4. So here's your Father's Day exhortation. Do your kids know that they have your delight and your devotion and not just your declarations? It's not an either-or, is it? To serve our children well, it must be a both-and declaration, without delight, can push a child away just as readily as an overly permissive fabrication of delight without loving the child enough to give boundaries can. It's a package deal. Employers, <clears throat> are you given to treating employees, kind of reducing them in your, in your estimation of them, to cogs in the machine? Purely so far as it profits you. Not wrong for an employer to seek profit. You're managing human assets made in the image of God as well. In any case, wherever you've been entrusted with authority, we could add coaches, we could add teachers, we could add politicians. Wherever that's the case, because you're human and I'm human, you've been entrusted with that authority as a steward or an ambassador and not as Lord. Okay, Steward, ambassador, not Lord. So what what conclusions, as you think about the, the, the different, you know, those roles you may inhabit, what conclusions do you think that those who are meant to be under your care, what conclusions do you think they draw about the God you serve by the manner in which you express authority? Those who are receiving your authority learn, they're drawing conclusions not only about you, but about your God, based on the manner in which you steward authority. It's not just Caesar who will ultimately answer to God, is it? All right, step three. The more important but unasked question. Jesus does not... They, they ask, what do we do with the coin in Caesar? And they stop there. But Jesus does, he does not stop at render to Caesar. He goes on to say more than they asked for. He goes on to... Explain what they need. Verse, the second half of verse 25. Render to God the things that are God's. So what are the things that are God's? Everything, right? It's the easy answer. While Jesus has said, pay the coin back to Caesar, at this point, he is now rejecting Caesar's claim to be a divine son, and he will not have his followers submit to it. He's relativizing. He's not saying Caesar has no claim but he is relativizing Caesar's claim to a much higher one. And so we broaden out again for a moment, right? Human authority, limited delegated, we've done all all that. Because that's true, because that's true in this life, it is both the case that rendering everything to God will sometimes call on us rendering to Caesar even when we don't like it. So you pay your taxes even when you think government spending is wasteful, perhaps even immoral, right? But rendering everything to God may also at times call upon us, require us to disobey Caesar and stand ready to accept the fallout when the state exceeds the rightful limits of its authority and demands what belongs to God alone. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do just that. The point, uh, here, Paul, the way Paul puts it in Romans thirteen seven, is that you pay, yes, you pay to Caesar and to others in relevant authority what is owed to them. But only God is owed everything, not the state. So in principle, and it's easier to frame it out in principle than to deal with particularities that come up, but in principle, if Caesar would coerce violation of God's commands, obstruct the great commandment, commandment, sorry, or the great commission, try to compel immoral behavior or otherwise imperil the church's mission, then Caesar's demands have exceeded the limits of his assigned authority. Clearly, he's not recognizing that that's true, but God is. And when that happens, if that happens, the people of God then have to give prayerful consideration to whether civil disobedience is warranted and in what fashion it might be warranted as an aspect of rendering everything to God when those kinds of claims collide. Of course, when that happens, brothers and sisters in the faith may disagree with one another, and we saw that in our recent COVID history, didn't we? Uh, my, my goal here is not to, to expound this slide, but to put it into play. Let's see if I'm going to put it into play. Maybe Chloe is going to put it into play, or Philip will put it into play. There it is. For, for discussion over your Father's Day lunches. Is that what you want to talk about for Father's Day lunch? Or at Grace Group. Just just some parameters for, for thinking through um, the relevant aspects that kind of help flesh out that the balance. So the fact that delegated human authority is good from the beginning, right? It's like it's God's idea right off the bat. It's inherently good. Can be corrupted, but inherently good. The appointment of civil authority under God's sovereignty and some examples and, and, and uh, indications of, of what rendering everything to God looks like when governing authorities exceed their, their limits. So I'm going to leave that there for a moment. Um, you can jot some of those passages down, take a picture of that if you want, consider that for further reflection. While that's still up there, let me just, just flesh this out by giving a couple of other sort of uh, non-state examples of the illegitimate exercise of authority. So here's one, this, this would never happen at Grace, but this is an example. Say one of your elders said, hey, you're, uh, you're supposed to submit to the authority of your elders, so I would like you to drop by my house every Saturday, wash my car, and while you're at it, bring me a delicious, freshly made egg salad sandwich. The Lord. I like egg, egg salad sandwiches, are right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, that that exceeds the limits of the elder's authority, does it not? It's very different than the agency of an elder approaching a member, challenging that member in love in the face of unrepentant immorality, isn't it? Here's another one. Let's say uh, say that uh, husband and wife, they're married. Uh, Wife has uh, become a believer. The husband is not. The husband says to the wife, I would really like you to stop taking the kids to church on Sunday because they annoy me every Sunday trying to get me to go with you. I just want to play golf. I want to be left alone. So if you don't take them, they won't bother me. Outright, She follows him so far as he follows Christ. And when he parts company with Christ, certainly, you know, try to be as congenial and respectful as possible, but that is a command, a declaration, an expression of leadership uh, with which uh, he doesn't have the authority to, to obligate and to which I would argue she should not comply. Well, let's bring it back to the main point uh, of, the, of the passage. Right? Are they, scribes and chief priests, are we, Rendering everything to God. Uh, what Yes, what bears Caesar's likeness belongs to Caesar. But even more comprehensively, and here is the main point. I'm going to try this, Chloe. Be ready on back up. Oh, yay. And one more. What bears God's likeness belongs to God. Pretty good, huh? This is, uh, I'd like to call him my friend. I've never met him. This fellow over at Full of Eyes runs that website. He does ex- what he calls exegetical art. And uh, so you, 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 you get that, right? Image on the coin of Caesar, image of God. So uh, what, what, what belongs to God ha- is, is what has God's likeness, God's imprint, God's image on it. And that's not less than the coins in our pockets. It is a whole lot more. See, the, the big problem for the scribes and the chief priests was not a misunderstanding of what to do with Caesar's coin, but a misaligned stewardship of their lives. They're trying to kill King Jesus. And so they are manifestly not rendering everything to God. One, com- one commentator put it this way, they are very much like the tenants in the previous parable who refused to give the owner of the vineyard the fruit that was owed to him. So, we have to again, we have to ask ourselves are we rendering our whole lives, everything about us, to Christ? He wants all of you. He deserves all of you, with no exceptions and nothing held back. So, be worth considering where, like, where does my life functionally say to Christ, not here, not here. And, If you can identify something, right, in response to that question, what might it look like to trust him and to render to him whatever you have been inclined to hold back? Maybe you're wondering why you can trust him as you give everything to him. That can be scary, right? To yield to someone else's authority can be very scary. I imagine that many of you have experienced being burned by that in one way or another. So how can it be wise to trust him? And then here, this is going to fit, I think, very nicely with the Adventure Week theme. The answer is that he's a different kind of king, ruling a different kind of kingdom. He's different from Caesar, right? The kings of the earth are quite content to flatten their opposition and often their own people, provided they have the firepower. Jesus is different from these religious leaders who, as we have seen, devour the people to prop up their own egos. Jesus, King Jesus, is different from us. From our first breath, sin has formed us and warped us into chronic self-protection. Jesus is about to do anything but self-protect. Now, he has the power and the right to consume his enemies, doesn't he? And our sin, which opposes his reign over our lives, has made us self-declared enemies of Jesus. But he's the good shepherd. He came to make enemies sheep and to lay down his life for us. You have never met a king like this. He is both complete in authority and characterized by perfect, steadfast love And mercy. He is about to render himself to God the Father, to the uttermost. He has perfectly fulfilled all that the law has required. In John 19, he submits to Pilate, who in this case is an extension of Caesar, when he could overthrow it all with a snap. Remember Pilate? Pilate says, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? What does Jesus say? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So he refuses to self-protect before Pilate, not because he regards the character of Pilate, but out of reverence and trust for his father, even until his final breath. He did that for you. He did that for me. And in so doing, he supplied what you and I need but can't produce. There is no one so trustworthy as him. And that leads to our final observation down in verse 26. In verse 26, these guys are quietly stunned, and they are amazed at his wisdom, but they do not repent. Friends, it is not enough to admire Jesus' savvy. He's got lots of it. To be occasionally impressed by his insight, it's very impressive. Or to regard him as a good teacher alongside other good teachers. Trust, obedience, and worship are what he is due. And they do not render that to him. It's too late for them now. But their response doesn't have to be ours. Friend, are you regarding him and responding to him with less weightiness than he is due? If that's true, if that's true, it's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to admit that about yourself if that's true. And the good news is that today, there is time for you to embrace him as you want. We have people here at Grace who would love to help you process that, reflect on questions. What does that look like? What about this piece that I'm holding back that I know I need to render to him? Prayer team leaders will be at the front at the end of the service. I will be sitting right over here, would love to talk with you, pray with you. Uh, encourage you. Okay, so let me point out the upshot of this really, really good news of Christ's kingship before we turn to the Lord's Supper. when, When Christ returns and his kingdom is consummated, Christians will never again have to ponder the matter of questioning authority. You'll never have to ask that question again. And it's not because there will be an absence of authority in his kingdom, but in his consummated kingdom, there will be the comprehensive rule, security, and strength that we long for and that we require to truly rest. That will be realized in Christ Jesus. It will finally be as the prophet Isaiah long ago foretold. Here's what he said. You remember this from your... uh,